Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. As we prepare for a big year of JOSPT Insights interviews, we're easing into 2023 by recapping some of our top episodes from 2022. These are the episodes that you loved and listened to in your droves. As you know, ratings and reviews help us reach new listeners. A very big thank you to the folks who have taken time to review JOSPT Insights, like Joseph Lee, who writes, Wonderful Insights. As a medical student, listening to these podcasts has been very interesting and thought-provoking. Okay, here's today's episode. Today we're making assessing and diagnosing shoulder problems simple. In part one of this two-part series with clinical physiotherapy specialist Joe Gibson, we explore the ways of communicating well with injured athletes and walk through the tests that you need in your clinical arsenal to best support injured athletes. Joe brings her extensive clinical and teaching and mentoring experience across elite and recreational sports that include football or soccer, rugby, cricket, gymnastics, swimming, boxing, canoeing and tennis to this mini shoulder masterclass. Joe Gibson, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Hi Claire, it's great to be here. Really uh, excited and fun to be here to chat with you. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today, Joe. And today we're tackling that tricky return to sport after shoulder injury scenario that I'm sure is a familiar conundrum for many of the folks who are listening to us today. I want to take just a moment to set up a clinical scenario. Now, you're a specialist shoulder clinician, which means that you're often seeing folks or you're often seeing athletes for a second or a third consult, which will also resonate, I'm sure, with some of the listeners today. So let's say that a rugby player comes in to see you for a specialist consultation. She's seen some other clinicians before she sees you, but her shoulder, it just is not getting better after she was injured in a tackle. What information do you want to know so that you can best help this injured athlete, Joe? Oh, so Claire, that's so kind of representative of exactly what I do in my clinic on a regular basis. And um, I certainly had two or three patients that fitted exactly that description uh, in the clinic yesterday. I guess for me, my starting point is always to sit and listen and understand how that athletes ended up with me, because I think I'm very privileged to work in a specialist role. I'm sure early in my career, I had a phase where I was like, I'm going to sort out everything that everybody else couldn't and actually very quickly had to develop some humility and realize that actually there's some key principles that if we follow, most people will do well. So if they don't, there's also probably some key themes as to why not. And one of the key ones is definitely communication. So I'm always very keen, one, that they know that I've read their notes so they think I'm prepared and ready for them, that I've talked to the other people involved in their care but then I let them retell the story in their own words. And so I think for me, the richness of the information that patient will give me helps me kind of understand the journey so far, understand what they've been told, and importantly, then almost reflect that back on them. And and how does that make you feel? And what do you understand by that? Or what's your understanding of what's going on with your shoulder? So clearly, if she turns around and says, well, I don't really know, I've seen all these people, they can't give me a good explanation. That doesn't mean they haven't given her a good explanation. It just hasn't resonated with her beliefs or what she's been told by family, friends, 
So there's obviously an incongruence or a problem there straight away, or she might have been told something and I might say, well, how do you feel about that? And she said, well, I don't really think it can be that because I've been on Google or I've spoken to my coach and again, getting this information. So my starting point has to be understanding what that athlete's been told, what it means to them, and also their expectations and how they're feeling about it. Because increasingly, you know, as a clinician, I'm always looking for the key thing I can do to make a difference. But I set myself up to fail if I don't understand that patient narrative from the outside set. So their ideas, their concerns, their expectations, whether they want to get back to sport. Certainly, if we look some of the evidence as to why athletes don't get back, there's no doubt persistent apprehension, persistent pain or issues. But actually, for some, it's just a natural end to their career or they want a lifestyle change or they just decide that actually the frustration of playing with pain or lack of confidence in their shoulder, they're a point where they want to stop and actually nobody's asked them that question or given them that permission. Exploring, obviously, the injury itself. One, the context around it, because again, we know that if at the time of injury, say they've just got their place in the team or they've got somebody chomping at the bit to take their place in the team or the coach is like, whoa, I can't believe you've got injured again. Or they know somebody who had the same injury and it took them ages to get back. We know that those contextual factors, again, can have a really negative effect. Then I need to get into the detail of that mechanism of injury and start to understand, is there something that I need to know more about that might explain why this athlete is not doing well? How does this conversation change depending on who the athlete is? So let's say you're working with a youth athlete versus an elite athlete versus a recreational athlete. And I know that you're working with people across the lifespan, all ages, all levels of participation in sport. So how does that, that, how do you nuance that conversation about what's happened before and what the person understands? Oh, I think that's a great question. I mean, I I would like to think that my communication style and how I start the consultation is very similar, irrespective of the the athlete in front of me, where it gets complicated, obviously with the younger athlete is kind of parental involvement, coach involvement, the sport they're doing. And as you know, some sports are better than others in terms of athlete development and load management and those sorts of things. But I don't think it's any different in terms of understanding all the people involved in that athlete's management, if you like, I I actually think that the more elite they are, often the more complicated it becomes because so many more people are invested in that athlete. And whilst I make a massive effort to communicate with all the stakeholders within that athlete's development, it's harder because as you know, in elite sport, people have really strong belief systems. They have a really strong way of doing something. And if they believe that there's one way of getting this athlete's shoulder better and I disagree, then that can be tricky. As long as I can establish a good rapport with that athlete where they trust me, then as long as I get to the nub of what they understand and what it means to them, I'm well placed to reflect that. But then sometimes it might mean difficult conversations. So I guess with the elite athletes, it's sometimes more complicated because of all the people involved, the recreational athlete, the competing interests in terms of work and not being able to afford time off work. So I might explore those things and and search out a little bit more how important that is to them in terms of what they really want to get back to. And as I say, the youth athlete, again, I think we underestimate sometimes the psychological stress. So you can see that it's all the same. I guess it's just my communication style and how I make that connection with them and the things where it's more likely to be an issue, I might just explore a little bit differently. What's the most important thing that you've learnt over your career so far, Joe, about communicating and about connecting with the athlete at where they are and at that level? 
communicate is listening and be, I know it's very hard to believe me being quiet, but listening and being quiet. We think so much about our what we say and we get all this press about, oh, don't let me say these words because once they're out, you can't put them back in. But the problem is all those things are influenced by somebody's previous experience, their culture, their or their beliefs, all sorts of their psychological trait, all sorts of things. But actually 55% of our communication is in that nonverbal domain. So if you're looking interested, you create a safe space. To me, it's creating an environment that is safe that's private, that they feel they can talk to you and trust you. And I I guess I kind of highlight those rules from the outset. But if I'm honest, Claire, I just listen. The other thing I've really learned and what's really important to show the patient, sorry, the athlete, the player, the client, whatever you want to call them, that I'm hearing them is to summarize and reflect back what they've said or chunk and check, if you like. So, So what you're hoping from today is I'm going to be able to give you an explanation for your shoulder pain. And you want to know how long it's going to take to get better. And you kind of want me to write all that out for you. Yes, is that right? And they say, yeah, that's great. Or you want me to, whatever. But then the other thing that's really important is, look, you've had this injury for a long time. It's clearly causing you a lot of distress. It sounds like you've had lots of different information. That must be very difficult. Or that sounds like it's really difficult because sounds like it's one of the most powerful ways of showing empathy. And it sounds like what you're doing there, Joe, is centering what we sometimes read about and hear about, hear people talking about centering the athlete or centering the client or the patient or whoever it is within that consultation, but within the broader picture of injury. Absolutely right. Because I think, again, when I look back to my younger self, if somebody came in with an injury like this, you know, I was desperate to fix everybody and sort it out. And as you can imagine, I came a cropper fairly quickly. There's no doubt there's lots of things I can do. And that's what's fun about my job. But I think what I learned, particularly in problem solving clinics or tertiary referral clinics, is probably up to 60% of the problems related to communication in some way. Either the athlete hadn't had an explanation that resonated with their belief system or they didn't feel listened to. And I must admit, one of the most common things I get from athletes or patients is it's the first time anybody's really listened. And that's not a criticism of the other clinicians because, you know, we have a role and there's an expectation of what we're going to do. And if you're working in a sporting environment, you know, people want a quick result because they want that athlete back to play. I've got a tremendous luxury is that I'm in an environment where I've seen us giving an objective opinion, but I'm outside that environment. So it's kind of almost immediately easier. And you're absolutely right. It's putting the patient or the athlete at the center of that, hearing their story and making it very clear it's about them, not their pain or their injury. So let's bring this back to the clinical scenario, our rugby player with a shoulder injury after a tackle. What are some of the clinical, the next sort of clinical steps that you're going to take from here? So what sorts of assessments are you looking at doing? Where, How are you going to gather more information to shape the treatment planning that you're doing? Obviously, one of the key things is hearing about the mechanism of injury. So in, in my head, what I'm interested in is what are the things that might stop me being able to help this athlete get better? And there's no doubt one of the things that has to be considered is is there a structural injury? So in my head, it's like, is it torn and does it matter? So was that original mechanism of injury sufficient that they could have got a label tear or an AC joint injury, which are probably the most common things that we see in rugby? Um, Yes or no. Now, one of the issues when we look at the research around the shoulder is certainly if you look at things like cuff tears, a good indicator of whether somebody's more likely to need surgery is they have immediate onset of symptoms and loss of function. 
Well, as you all know, rugby players are a bit of a different breed. So actually that's not well supported in the rugby in uh, literature and that they get injured, they carry on because of adrenaline and brute force and everything else. And actually later on, because they don't respond to rehab, they're found to have something structural. And I think certainly if you look at label tears in rugby, the bottom line is that actually a small percentage actually result from a true dislocation. Often it's landing on the shoulder or it's going into contact or the tackle. And there's some key kind of patterns of injury relating to those. So to me, it's about the mechanism as in, was it wound up? Could it be labral? Could, have they landed on it? Could be labral or AC joint. So those things immediately give me some clues. Uh, what makes the pain worse or better or whether it's more a feeling of instability. Again, the positions that make it worse or better make it very easy for me to kind of rule in the likelihood that there might be some underlying structural components and obviously how badly that's affecting them in terms of their function. The other thing that you've always got to consider with this population is any kind of cervical spinal neural involvement because clearly the amount of force impacted, there may have been a stinger or there may have been some neural overstretch at the time of injury. Now, really what I'm looking for is the clues that might explain why they haven't responded to all those fabulous clinicians that have got involved already. And if I'm honest, most of the athletes have been scanned and been imaged to death by the time that they see me anyway. But certainly that would be a question in my head. And then really in terms of um, those bread and butter basics, I'm going to look at range of movement. I want an impression of how willing they are to move. But when I look at it in my head, I guess in terms of, let's say we take somebody with instability, I'm interested in the structure. I'm interested in the muscle function. I'm interested in neuromuscular control, which seems to cause all sorts of excitement, but I'll explain how I think I do it. And as we've already discussed that psychosocial domain. So in terms of range of movement, I'm always going to look at passive range. First of all, I don't expect this cohort to have stiffness unless they've had surgery. I'm going to look at their willingness to move and see if they can demonstrate a movement where they're apprehensive or painful, if that's reproducible and it's something that they can do consistently. I like symptom modification where I just make it easier for the shoulder by changing load and give them some resistance. My rationale is I'm changing muscle recruitment. There's no doubt I'm changing loads of things, but all I'm interested in is, is it easy to change? Now, having looked at those things and just an impression of how, I guess, protective the person is of the shoulder, how irritable it is, all those sorts of things. The other thing I like to look at is I like to look at the cuff in isolation I'm very aware the cuff and scapula work together and separating them functionally and exercise wise doesn't make a lot of sense. But Karen Jin's done some lovely research of an assessment tool that I look at in prone, where I just look at their passive range of movements and then look at the athlete's ability to support the weight of the arm and do that same movement actively. So they're doing that in that 90 degrees abduction. Now that's where, if you like, if you want to expose the cuff or look at its contribution, the biggest contribution relative to some of the other shoulder muscles that seems to be a good position. And it's a really lovely way, not only for me to see, is the cuff doing its job with the weight of the arm? And you think, well, with a rugby player, it's got to be. So 95% of the time it isn't. And there is a big difference side to side. It doesn't tell me it's weak. It just tells me that that system's not doing its job very well. The athlete feels it, which is great because it's something validates why they might have symptoms. But importantly, it's something I can be measure to assess the effectiveness of what I do. Now, then, of course, I'd have my usual strength measurements. I might, depending again how irritable they were, I might use handheld dynamometry in that 90-90 position if they can do it without pain or apprehension. If not, then I'll just look at them in prone in the kind of dangle position. So their forearms vertical because that's where the ratio is one-to-one. If you're dealing with a rugby player, they're going to like numbers. So I, that handheld dynamometer is invaluable. And whether I do it as a resisted or not depends where I'm working. 
with this athlete, let's see, she's had a lot of physio, she's got some good movement, but it's when she's loading it, it's a problem. I really like the ash test. Now the ash test originally was described having people lying down in prone with their head supported, the other arm behind the back, and then essentially testing their ability to push down hard and fast for three seconds in the I, Y, and T position. Now, the reason this test came about is in the shoulder, we just nick everything from the lower quadrant, pretend we're really clever and reinvent it. And as you know, from the ACL literature, we had athletes who passed all their strength measures, but then we found their rate of force production and their ability to maintain peak power was poor. And no great surprise, we see exactly the same in the shoulder. So my what I see, if it's not psychosocial, a lot of the athletes who come to see me have problems with that sensory motor or neuromuscular control. And so what I love about the ash test, I, again, I use, I have got force platforms where I work. I'm very lucky now, but before that I didn't. Um, and I really like the handheld dynamometer that actually has that function. So it gives me a force production curve and you just do um, three repetitions of three seconds on both arms unaffected. And then in, in each of those three positions. Now, what's really fascinating is you can have an athlete who seems to pass all your strength measures. You know, your resisted testing is great, but when you look at that prone cuff joint active versus joint passive. And you look at the ash test, you see some real deficiencies in that force production curve and their ability to maintain their peak power. So those things are really valuable because one, they validate to the athlete why they've still got symptoms and importantly highlight things that we can work on. But for me, they're also very simple things that I can remeasure. So when you've got a disillusioned athlete who's seen lots of other people, it's not blaming anyone. It's saying, look, there's loads of stuff here that's really good, but we found some chinks that actually now we can work on. And that may explain why you've still got symptoms. Now, the other thing that I always look at, um, I'll obviously look at the cervical spine for the reasons that we said, I can't help myself with the odd special test if they've had trauma, but I recognize it's a tiny part of what I do. The apprehension test is probably one of our most special tests if they've had a frank history of dislocation or some sort of traumatic history. But of course, it's only relevant in conjunction with everything else. So sometimes those things have value, but only instability tests. So my question is, do I need investigations? Yes or no. And I guess the final thing I look at is the kinetic chain. Now, I don't look at it in massive detail. I just look at thoracic rotation. If they've had lower quadrant injuries, I might just do a quick capacity test. But that, in terms of what I've shared with you, those are probably the building blocks of my assessment and the things I feel give me best value. Now, you didn't mention the scapula, Joe, and I'm wondering, are there any specific things that you look at with the scapula or does that come into your kinetic chain assessment or you're not bothered about it? Oh, so I love that question, Claire, or I hate that question, <laughs> depending on how brave I'm feeling. So the bottom line is, I, in my career, I've been through every scapula course out there learning to assess the scapula. I think what we have come to appreciate is spending ages assessing the scapula is just not a good use of our time. So you'll remember I said at the outset of the assessment, I look at how they move and I definitely look at them moving from the back. And what I'm interested in is how confidently they move and if there's good engagement through that chain. Now that sounds very subjective and kind of how on earth would you measure that? I'm just looking for relative symmetry and if they're protecting the shoulder when they move. So a really common strategy is they tend to kind of overuse their lats and pecs and almost dump their shoulder at the beginning of the movement. And obviously that just makes life harder for the shoulder. The stark reality is if we look at the evidence about the scapula, our static measures have great intertestor reliability, you know, tape measures, goniometers, whatever, but they have no relationship to what happens when somebody moves. 
And we also have studies saying as a specialist physio, I'll look at a scapula. I believe I see asymmetry. I believe I can measure posterior tilt and upward rotation. But if my mate tries to do it, they won't get the same results. If I look at videos of problem shoulders, I've got a 50% hit rate. So I'm not saying I don't look at it, but I don't get into the nuance of upward rotation, posterior tilt, whatever. I just want that whole system to engage in a way that feels good and the, and the athlete feels confident. And I think, again, I have to be honest in that my bias probably against those nuances is I get athletes coming in that are obsessed by a lack of symmetry. They're obsessed by the scapula doesn't feel right because at some point in their rehab, somebody has said, this is a really important part of your shoulder function. And the reality is asymmetry, particularly if you play a sport where you have a lot of real hand dominance, is really normal. We just don't understand yet at what point it becomes pathological. It might, if it changes and gets worse, it might reduce your load tolerance. But other than that, I think we need to be careful being too vigilant about it. And let me pick up on the force production curve stuff that you talked about. And I want to clarify with the ASH test, we're talking about I, Y and T, which are positions where the athletes got their arm above their head. So straight above their head is I, out to 45 is Y, and then out to 90 degrees abduction basically is the T position. And then you're pushing against either the handheld dynamometer or if you're fortunate enough against a force plate on the floor. Yeah, absolutely. And you just push down hard and fast for three seconds and you do the best of three reps in each of those three positions and obviously compared to their unaffected side. What are you looking at in the force production curves there, Joe? Is it that the force curve goes straight up really fast? Are you looking for a steady curve? What, what sort of shape are you looking for? Yeah, so you're kind of looking almost like a rectangle. So you want a pretty fast upward generation of force, and then you want to be able to maintain it uh, to the point that you tell them to stop the test. So I'm kind of looking at that kind of almost quite square curve, I guess. Now, I think what we have to be really honest about, most of the normative data we have for this test is in the rugby population. Ben Ashworth and, uh, and his colleague, Gus Morrison, doing some awesome work trying to put together normative data in other patient groups. And whilst we don't have robust evidence to support this, generally after discussion with them and my experiences, you're looking at generating kind of 40% of your peak power in the first 100 milliseconds. But it's really that question of can they generate it fast and can they maintain it and what does it look like compared to the other shoulder? Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Listener.